Hi everyone, I'm Damon Klotz, and welcome to the Culture First podcast. Before we start the episode, I want to let you know that this podcast is brought to you by CultureAmp. CultureAmp helps companies to create a better world of work. Using people science and technology, we give companies the tools and support to create high-performing cultures and ultimately deliver on more humanity at work. You can learn more about CultureAmp as well as find all of the episodes from this show at culturefirstpodcast.com. All right, let's get started. My favorite question to ask all of my direct reports is, how can I support you to do the best work of your life? Culture first. 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 I'm Damon Klotz, and this is Culture First. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Culture First podcast. I'm your host, Damon Klotz. This podcast is a place to come together to share stories about what it means to lead in a culture first way and how we can all play a part in creating a better world of work. Wherever you are in the world right now, I want to thank you for tuning in. This is a very special episode for a few reasons. Firstly, because it contains an amazing interview between myself and Chip Conley that I've been waiting to share with all of you for a long time. And secondly, because I have a very special announcement to make. If you're a long-time listener of this podcast, then you'll know that I've had the pleasure of interviewing some of the most amazing humans out there who all believe in building a better world of work. I've spoken with best-selling authors like Esther Perel and Simon Sinek. I talked about activism with Doray McKesson and learned from investors like Ambrosia Vitesi. I've also used this platform to amplify the stories and voices that I believe the world needs to be hearing more from. And I'm proud to say that this podcast has played a small part to make sure that more people know the names and the work of people like Minda Hartz and Michelle Kim. A lot of the guests that you've been hearing me interview, I actually interviewed on site at our Culture First conference. And I've got very fond memories of that event, as well as that entire week, which, I will admit, was the most intense week of my life. Now, during that week, I pulled off back-to-back interviews with some of my, like, actual workplace heroes, people whose books I'd read back at college. During that event, I keynoted the main stage on day one. And then there was also a bunch of other activities, as well as just 1,300 people running around that I wanted to spend some time with. And then before the event even finished, I flew all the way back to Australia and I emceed my brother's wedding only to turn around and come all the way back to California a few days later. How I squeezed all of that into a single week will continue to be a mystery to me. What's not a mystery though, is how powerful that event was for our community and for the entire team at Coltramp. Over 1,300 people joined us in San Francisco for three days of inspiration, sharing, and connection. If you're listening to this show, there's a chance that you might have been one of those people or even know someone who was there. We had attendees call it the best conference they've ever been to. Another person said it was like a theme park for the future of work. And one very special guest 
left so inspired by the content, they decided to go get a tattoo from one of the quotes on the event, which will continue to be one of my favourite stories during my time at Culture Amp. So live on stage at that event was Chip Conley, who's the main guest on today's episode. And Chip said the following, The thing I love about this conference is that it's not a conference, it's a community. Now, after all this build-up, I'm excited to let you know that we are bringing back the event in 2021. We know that as magical as that event was, it wasn't accessible to a large part of our Culture First community. That's why this year we're inviting you to join us as we host three events over three months in three different time zones. As a listener of this podcast, I want to personally invite you to join me. Right now, whether you're on your phone or on your laptop, I want you to head to culturefirstglobal.cultureamp.com. That's culturefirstglobal.cultureamp.com to secure your free ticket. And when you do sign up, make sure to let us know that you're a listener of the podcast. I'll be sending some special gifts out to everyone who signs up after listening to this episode. Now, there will be more information as well as speaker announcements and sneak previews of content here on the podcast over the coming weeks and months. But until then, it's now time for me to introduce my guest for today's episode, Chip Conley. Chip Conley is a world-renowned hospitality entrepreneur and best-selling author. At age 26, he founded Joadaviv Hospitality, transforming one inner-city motel into the second-largest boutique hotel brand in America. After running his company as CEO for 24 years, he sold it, and soon the young founders of Airbnb asked him to help transform their promising startup into the world's leading hospitality brand. On this episode, you'll hear Chip and I discuss how much of our identity should actually be associated with our work, why organisations need to recognise the EQ that older generations can bring to the workplace, and we'll find out if Chip Conley thinks if I'm wise. So today I'm joined by Chip Conley. Chip, thanks for having this conversation with me. Yeah, it's good to be here. So I'm going to start with a question that I think is important to you, but I want to ask it in two ways. What business were you in and what business are you in? So what business was I in? If we get it down to the distilled fifth question, Mm. which is how this exercise should work, is it's a way to understand your essence. I think I I was in the, the business of social alchemy, um, helping people to connect together, whether it's in a cultural way in a company with my company, Joie de Vivre, or in at Burning Man, I'm on the board, and how do you create social alchemy in the desert at a festival or, or at Airbnb in charge of all the hosts globally. So I think social alchemy basically means you know how to mix people together in a way that actually is combustibly positive. What business am I in now? I think I'm in the business of um, making aging aspirational. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> Which is a, you know, pushing a rock up a, a pretty steep hill um, because aging has not been aspirational in the last mm. century. Um, and I'm not suggesting you go back to a century or two ago where all the old people are revered. But what I am 
imagining is that if we mine our mastery and understand what we've learned along the way, there's some beautiful ways that we can take older people and mix them with younger people, still some social alchemy, to actually create a better result as a result of that, of that connection. 30 years ago, did you feel like that would be your, no. your work that you're doing right now? No, 32 years ago, 32 and a half years ago, I started Joie de Vivre Hospitality, second largest boutique hotel company in the U.S., ran it for 24 years. And I, I think I ex- expected I would probably do that till I died. So started at 26, imagined I'd be doing it for 50 to 60 years. And then about 11 years ago, I had this awakening of like, oh my God, I, I'm not supposed to be doing this anymore. And it was like, it was not like the dimmer. It was like, no, light from on to off. Right. And all of a sudden I realized it, this wasn't what I was supposed to do anymore. And after 24 years of creating a, a really culture-focused company and writing books about it, um, all of a sudden it was time for me to sell the company at, in the bottom of the Great Recession and figure out what was next. I think it's rare for a CEO or the founder of the company to have that conversation with themselves. Usually you put so much of your own time and it becomes your story into it. That is probably hard to have that. But I think it's also true for employees to actually have that conversation. Is like, have I outgrown the place that I'm in? Yeah, I, it's, it's hard because we, in many cases, uh, we have a tendency it's, it, to actually leave your workplace or leave um, a, a position you've been in. It feels like a divorce. Mm. And, and it's like that business card no longer has any relevance and, and many, for many of us, our business card may have had a lot to do with our esteem. Mm. And, and certainly has a lot to do, in my case, as someone who started at age 26 and ran it till age 50, to be how other people saw me. So my identity was quite defined by being the founder and CEO of Joie de Vivre. And so, frankly, once I knew it was time to move on, it took me a couple of years to start talking about it to other people. But at that point, I was clear and then they got clearer because I seemed like, okay, he's ready to move on. But I wasn't really sure what was next. Right. It's funny how paths take us in certain ways and you can't necessarily picture it. But then when you're in it, you just know that it feels right and this is the work that you should be doing now. Yeah. I think what more than anything, I realized that there was an element that I had started Joie de Vivre as a boutique hotel company for the creativity and freedom. But when it grew to 3,500 employees... I didn't feel a lot of creativity or freedom anymore. And we went through a dot-com bust and a great recession within six or eight years of each other. And I was, I was tired. Yeah. It's a HR practice that I want to see more widely adopted is a more honest conversation between companies and the people that they employ. Maybe every six to 12 months, especially during fast growth is would I reapply for the job I'm currently doing? Yeah. Because we adapt and we change. And like you said, like creative, creativity and freedom is easy when you've got a hundred of your closest friends working on a couple of hotels. Yes. When it's 3,500 people and you're like, I'm in meetings that I don't care about anymore yeah. or I've lost that passion or, you know, but to have it as, at an employee level as well as at a founder level, it's still a very hard conversation. My favorite question to ask all of my direct reports, both as a hotelier and then for the last six and a half years at Airbnb as a full-time employee and then now an advisor is how can I support you to do the best work of your life hmm. at Joie de Vivre or at Airbnb? And that question is really important because it actually does speak to this idea of, are you still in the game? Yeah. And, and there are three components to that question. One is, how can I support you? And when, a, when you hear your boss say that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a, hopefully a good sign that your boss wants to, you to succeed. It's amazing how many employees don't think their boss wants them to succeed when in fact it's a lot harder for the boss if you don't succeed. Yeah. So how can I support you 
to do the best work of your life, that's when you have to take stock and say, can I do the best work of my life here at this point? Or am I burned out? Or do, do I not have the resources? Um, and then the, the third piece of that is just speaking to the fact that, you know, I don't, I'm not, I'm not a mind reader. If you can tell me what you need mm-hmm. in resources and conditions of your work, that allows you to do the best work of your life here. I want to know what that is. It doesn't mean we can actually meet all of your needs, but if we actually say, here's the 12 things you want and we can get seven of them, that's better than having zero of them. So it's a, it's a great question. It also uh, brings up some of the equations that you've got that I wanted to actually run through. And then yes. I wanted to talk about some of the workplace examples where I think they're showing up and seeing if they've shown up in your career. Are you a logical person? Um, I find... I find meaning in patterns that don't necessarily, that others can't see. Ah, so I like seeing like complex stuff and then saying that there's like actually like a red thread between it. The pattern recognition. So yeah. that's, a, that's a, an alternative way of defining wisdom hmm. is pattern recognition in computers, but also more importantly in humans is, uh, is the step, first step toward being able to connect the dots and connecting the dots is, is a form of wisdom. These are the, some equations that you've come up with. Yes. Disappointment equals expectations minus reality. Yeah, that one could be true for anything. I mean, I, whether it's a relationship with a boss, which sort of speaks to the idea of how do you manage expectations. Um, if you're, or you're a manager and you've got people who are working for you and you keep getting surprised. Mm. And what you need to say to your direct report is like, wow, I don't, I don't want, I want you to manage my expectations. Even if you have to give me bad news early, I'd rather have that than be surprised when I get hit with a lot of bad news all at once. Right. Now, there's two pieces to this. There's the ex- expectations and then there's reality. And the key is, you know, managing expectations is one piece of it. The other piece is like, you know, how do you make reality better? But um, the reality, getting making reality better is part of what we all try to do. But the expectations management piece of this mm. is something that we don't usually think about. When I first heard this equation, I actually thought about the fact that it shows up probably most in the workplace with onboarding, mm. right? So when you think about you've just gone through this recruitment process, yeah, the employer branding was incredible. You're bought in. You're like, this is the place I want to be. Right. And then by like day 10, you're like, why am I here? Well, this is a, you know, it's a really important thing for all companies to look at is there's a natural, um, almost like a, a malaise or a, um, a, a buyer's remorse that happens for many people. And the question is, at what point does it happen? Does it happen on day two? Does it happen on day 10? Does it happen on, you know, month four? Mm. And if you can understand when that malaise or that remorse is happening, you can start to understand what's behind it and then how do you address it. But mostly it's about communication. And I think you're right. The onboarding process of helping people know, you know, we sold you all this, but here's what you're going to get. The key is you want to make sure that there's integrity in the process. And if you did sell something that was actually not accurate, then you have to go back to the recruiting process and say, we got got to fix that. Zappos actually famously would pay people to leave early on. Yeah. Because I think there's like that equation can work in two ways. It can either be miscommunication between the employee and the employer, mm-hmm. or sometimes the employee looks at it and goes, no, we've made maybe the wrong call for the employee. Yeah. But it's like, how can we honestly have a conversation about this early and like, let's not pretend. Yeah. It's very unorthodox. And what's interesting is Amazon, when they bought Zappos, actually liked it mm-hmm. and said, you know what, maybe we could consider this doing this as well. There's a lot of logic in it, in the sense that, Better to have someone leave than have them be, you know, a somewhat cancerous, uh, you know, in, in the organization. Yeah. So, um, but it also creates a high standard 
Because you end up getting to a place where everybody wants the money. <laughs> if people start applying for jobs just to say, actually, I don't want to work here. Well, that, that, yeah, you very much have to make sure that you've got a good, good, um, uh, a good filter and edit, editing function so you know people aren't doing that. Frankly, if people are doing that, it's not the best way to make money. <laughs> no. So the second one is anxiety equals uncertainty times powerlessness. Yeah. So this is a, when I was writing this book, Emotional Equations, uh, I studied it. 18 different emotions. And so I talked with all the leading experts on anxiety in the world, and they said, really, you can distill down two primary ingredients for anxiety. It's the uncertainty of not knowing, and it's the powerlessness of feeling there's no influence. So, um, so this, so what a company could do or a manager could do, especially in difficult times, because difficult times tend to bring anxiety, is transparency. Is essential mm. because even if you're giving bad news, you're at least and building trust, transparency and trust. If you build the transparency and trust, people are going to be less feeling of like, okay, they aren't telling us everything, or or back to disappointment equals expectations minus reality. I'm going to heighten my expectation of something bad, right? Because I don't want to be disappointed. Well, if you're in that environment, then people are like, well, that's not a very good environment to work in. Um, so that's the first piece is the uncertainty, and then the powerlessness is like, okay, how can we help people? influence or have power or control over their workplace enough so that they can feel like, okay, when things are struggling, they have the influence to improve it. Mm. But if you don't get it, you know, the thing that's interesting, that is a, not a plus sign between the two. It's a time sign because actually if both happen at the same time, it's a multiplicative combustible effect. I think when I was thinking about this one and where I could see it show up the most in the workplaces to that story that you shared just then, like when Times aren't going too well for the company. Yeah. One, the employees usually know it. Like mm-hmm. You can feel it. Yeah. And then the powerlessness is usually because they aren't sharing enough or asking for feedback. Mm. So it's like, if you let me in, if you actually were a bit more transparent in this process, maybe I can fix something. Maybe I have control over something. And that's when those things start to multiply. Because if you don't let them in, if you don't ask for their feedback during that time, yeah. then you, of course they're, they're powerless because... They don't know what they yeah. should be actually working on, right? Yeah. I mean, so much of the culture muscle is not the thing you do only when things go wrong. Mm. It's the thing you do all year long, yeah. every year, and it evolves with time. But if you think it's something that you actually invest in when everything's gone wrong, you know, at that point, uh, you've lost the trust of your people. Now, the last one is happiness equals wanting what you have. And then having what you want. Divided by having what Dividing you want. Dividing by what? Okay. I learned this in Bhutan. I went mm. to study the gross national happiness index in Bhutan. I came back and gave a TED talk on it in 2010. And what I learned from the Bhutanese and from cultures around the world that tend to be happier is if the, the top of that equation is wanting what you have. The bottom is having what you want. Wanting what you have means gratitude, appreciating what you have. Um, the number one and fastest way for a person to get happy has been proven is to actually create a gratitude practice. Mm-hmm. Um, now, if you do a gratitude practice basically as a habit and you get bored with it, it doesn't work so well. But if you can keep, keep it fresh, it actually tends to create more happiness. The bottom of that equation is having what you want. Having what you want to go out and pursue or have what you want is the process of gratification. Now, if you are too focused on gratification, not on gratitude, you have a bottom-heavy equation. So you may be successful. Mm. So I'm not going to say it. So but people have said, well, you're saying that you should be all about gratitude and you should be a couch potato because that second part, like having what you want is the thing you go pursue happiness, pursue 
I'm, I'm not saying that you shouldn't pursue things because the process of pursuing things and accomplishing things can create a lot of happiness. But the challenge is if you get on the, what's called the hedonic treadmill, which is to jump on the treadmill and constantly seeking and searching and pursuing, and then you get it and then you, it diminishes in value, then you start looking for the next one. You will be a successful person, but you may not be a happy person. And for a lot of, you know, American culture, it's built on the premise that if you're successful, you're happy. And there's so much evidence of people who don't fit that profile. Yeah, there's the famous studies around once you, you know, reach a certain amount of money, That's right. your happiness is not going to go up at the same rate. That's right. And then it becomes more about the mindset that you take in terms of what you actually have access to and whether you still want to grow and aspire to have more, but not more in the monetary sense, yeah. more in the meaning sense. I like, you know, I, one of the things I've talked about more recently, I haven't, I've not written about it in a book yet, is attaining and attuning. And I think these are two ways of being. The attaining way of being is you're in a type A mode, typically, and you're going out and accomplishing. And that's how I spent a lot of my life. But there's certain things I learned sports-wise or exercise-wise that are not attained sports. Yoga is not an attained sport. Surfing, which I've been learning at age 58, is not an attained sport. There's certain things in life that are meant to be attuned. And, you know, love is probably not an attain. It's probably an attune. Mm. So there's the thing in life as you get older is to actually learn when do I attain and when do I attune? And it's that mix similar to the happiness equation. When am I on the, you know, sort of the mode of trying to pursue something? And when am I just appreciating? Mm. And that, that, you know, knowing when to do one versus the other is sort of like the, the mystery and wisdom of life. My colleagues can sometimes sense when I'm about to have that moment where I'm trying to like be present, especially when, you know, we put on incredible events for our community or we're having access to like these conversations. And I remember vividly we were down in Los Angeles, we're running an event there for the first time for our community. And I was like, can everyone just come over here for a second? And one of my colleagues goes, Damon's about to have his being present moment. And it's, <laughs> I'm sitting there, I'm trying to ground people in the fact that, hey, like we get to do this. Like people are about to come through these doors to share an experience with us yeah. because we're inviting them in. And we should feel incredibly privileged and lucky to have this moment. Yeah, yeah. And then you just like sit in that moment for a second to really appreciate. <clears throat> you know, another way to you, another word you could use is being conscious about it. So, like being conscious means you're noticing. Mm. I actually think one of the greatest things about getting older is if you get it right, you become a first class noticer. Mm. And what that means is you just notice things inside you, inside another person, inside the room. Um, there's three kinds of listening. You can listen inside, you can listen to another person, you can listen for the field or the room. And when you get good at all three of those things and you're a first-class noticer on all three levels, that's when I, I think wisdom kicks in. So one of my favorite ideas that I heard you talk about, which I think really helped you at your time at Airbnb, mm. was being okay about like not knowing things yeah, and actually being open about that. But <clears throat> Was there a time where you actually felt resistance from like actually saying, hey, I don't know this and not knowing is not tied to age. It's yeah. tied to actually being open to the fact that I don't have the knowledge. Well, when, you know, I was brought on to Airbnb when I was 52. Average age in the company was 26. <clears throat> I was brought on to be the mentor and do head of global hospitality and strategy, but then be the mentor for the young CEO. So there's an element I had like, okay, I'm supposed to have all the answers. <laughs> And after the first week, I was like, oh, wow, I've never worked in a tech company before. I don't have all the answers. I have a lot of questions. Mm. The part that was awkward was I felt uncomfortable being the dumbest person in the room asking questions that most everybody else in the room knew because they were tech people. So what I had to realize was when do I ask the question in the room and it's going to serve the room? 
and when do I actually just make a list of the things I don't know? Google that later. And then I go Google later, <laughs> or I talk to Laura, you know, my assistant, my my, you know, a direct report of mine who knows you know tech really well. So I would. I, there were times actually. Here's the part that's interesting: when you have a beginner's mind, and you're open to being curious. Curiosity is not an efficient thing. Curiosity asks questions that sometimes are like, "What if?" and mm. um, "Why not?" and that's not necessarily efficient. But sometimes a company and a person needs to actually see their blind spot. And so part of what worked for me at Airbnb was when I had a dumb question to ask and it was obviously dumb, over time I figured out that's a dumb question. I'm not going to ask it in the room. And I'd make my question and ask it to someone afterwards. But when it was sort of like a why or what if question um, and why not question, I would actually bring it up in the room. And maybe a third to half the time people would say, oh, wow, we never have thought of that. Now, in the early days when I was like, oh, wow, like I used to think of it as basketball and baseball. So for people who are sports people, who are not sports people, apologize for this. In basketball, if you make 50% of your baskets from the field, that's really good. And maybe I was making a third of them from the field by like I'd ask a question and people say, oh, wow, that's a great question. So a third found really felt not really good. But then someone after a meeting once, a younger person came up to me and said, you ask the best questions. And I said, yeah, I th- but sometimes about a th- it feels like only about a third of the time people really appreciate them. And he said to me, well, well that's great. And I said, well, in basketball, that would be only 33%. Yeah. He says, no, you're a baseball player. In baseball, if you're hitting 333 as a baseball player, that is really good. Yeah. And you'd be like one of the best hitters. And so I all of a sudden realized I'm a baseball player, not a basketball player, when it comes to asking questions. And I think that, again, the frame of, uh, yes, occasionally my question is going to be a question that's going to be a home run mm. because it helps us to see something that the company hadn't seen otherwise. And the power of a home run is powerful. And when uh, it hits, it hits. It is. And it actually, here's the part that actually was also interesting. The fact that I was being open to being uh, someone who didn't know the answer was giving the license for other young people mm. to not feel like they have to be the smartest person in the room by having all the answers occasionally not knowing the answer, but trying to pretend. Yeah. And so I think the idea that people could actually say, I don't know, but let's explore that further it became, it also allowed for a little more authenticity. So people didn't feel like, okay, I have to pretend like, okay, I know what I'm doing. It's a healthier culture when a 24 year old can feel the same way as someone like you were feeling, which is yeah. like, I've been hired because I am smart and I want to be here. I want to progress and I want to move forward. But I also need to like be okay with like one of the things I know is that I don't know everything. That's right. And this is why mutual mentoring, I think, is the future uh, for learning and development. Mm. Because, you know, there you have, in my case, I had younger people who knew a lot more about digital intelligence, DQ, and I knew something about EQ, emotional intelligence, in the context of leadership or how to run a meeting or how to think of our customers differently. And that kind of a trade agreement where I could learn from them, they could learn from me, was so valuable and it cost nothing to the company. Just creating the conditions for that mutual mentorship to work um, was really valuable. I love the idea of like people are feeling irrelevant earlier. You love that? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's because, because you're young. <laughs> young I, don't think people, I, don't think, yeah, I don't think people actually love the idea of feeling irrelevant earlier. Well, maybe not because... I love it because it's not tied to age anymore. Yeah, that's it's true. It's actually tied to our sense of meaning and connection. Correct. So when I love it, I actually think it means we're okay with like, I feel irrelevant in, in this context. Yes. Right? So like, but that's that's hard for some people to really wrestle with. So I, 
How yeah. do you turn that obstacle into an opportunity rather than saying, I feel irrelevant in this company because yeah. it's, it's outgrown me or I've outgrown it? Like, how do we actually see that as a chance to reset as opposed to feeling like we failed? It's back to that first class noticing to actually dissect what it is I feel irrelevant about. I felt irrelevant when it came to technology. And then when I talked with a couple of friends and I talked to my father about it um, six and a half years ago when I was just starting at Airbnb, my dad said, well, of course you feel irrelevant when it comes to technology. You don't, you've never worked in a tech company before. But because my identity had been 24 years as a CEO of a company and you're supposed to know it all, there was an element of I didn't want to look like I was the dumbest person in the room. Mm. So once I could dissect what was it that I felt irrelevant or just, you know, frankly, not good at, then I could actually sort of say, okay, can I get, how do I get better at that? Mm -hmm. And that was, you know, a great learning for me, which is like, wow, lifelong learning is a true phrase. And the problem is lifelong learning is something we talk and bandy around, but there's not a lot of, um, I don't know, there's not a whole lot of things that we do as a society or as companies to assure that people have lifelong learning. Mm. And this is part of the reason we created this thing called the Modern Elder Academy down in Baja. It's a social enterprise that takes people at whatever age. We thought it was all midlife, people to 45 to 65, but we've had people from uh, 30 to 78 come down and say, I need to repurpose myself. I need to mind my mastery, figure out what it is I'm great at, and then also figure out how do I repurpose it in new environments. And so I have to learn in those new environments. Uh, I think we need more of that because we're going to have people who are going to, at age 32 or 38 or 46 or 70 years old, say, I'm not done. Yeah. I need to go out and take a little bit of a sabbatical to actually start learning again. And um, unfortunately, we don't have a whole lot of midlife wisdom schools that help people to do this. My first role in a professional capacity was actually in a learning and development department. And we were you know, responsible for creating L&D materials for 65,000 people. Wow. So I think where the L&D market has got stuck is we're very much trying to create something in the moment that they're trying to like, you need this right now based on how the world looks like. What you're saying is like, what would it look like for an L&D department to, to teach lifelong skills? Like what's a 40-year journey yes. on learning communication, not is how do you communicate more effectively in that meeting because you said something inappropriate? Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, a lot of, a lot of L&D is very tactical. And when in fact, and, and somewhat transactional, when in fact, what's most valuable is the transformational, mm. which tends to be long-term. Uh, and I also think that lear learning and development has a tendency to think that there's, it's, it's not a social learning model often. It's sort of like, we're going to teach you something. And it's, it's like, it's sort of like how we grew up with being spoon fed information. Yeah. When, um, what we've learned at the, at the Modern Elder Academy is frankly, uh, lifelong learning is not a game of solitaire. It's not like playing, you know, solitaire on the, the laptop by yourself. So online learning has, you know, marginal su success, um, most of it, partly because it doesn't have this component of your emotions, your passions, and your social experience being drawn in. And frankly, so much of the learning we have are from other people. Mm. And you learn, I mean, we learn, we have lots of different learning styles, but for many people, the learning from another person and through experience and through story, is what actually engages them to actually have it have it stick in you. It's like going to hear a great speech. If someone has a PowerPoint with all the facts and all the information, it may not need, be nearly as powerful as someone getting up and telling the story. Yeah. And the thing you remember five weeks later and you're talking about it is the story. Yeah. Not the you know the six bullet points. We spoke a little bit about like unmet needs. You know, what is the role of an organization in actually meeting the unmet needs of their employees? So I uh, wrote a book called Peak, How Great Companies Get Their Mojo from Maslow 12 years ago. And 
the top, uh, I, basically Maslow's hierarchy of needs and applied it to employees, customers, and investors. And the employee pyramid, which has job, career, calling, speaks to uh, survival, success, and and um, transformation. And that really speaks to money, recognition, and meaning. Generally speaking, the unmet need for employees is beyond the compensation or money part of the pyramid. It's recognition, mm-hmm. whether that's private recognition or public recognition. Um, and it is meaning. And meaning comes in two forms. It's the purpose of the company. And many companies are quite good at that, saying why their mission and the purpose is noble. But most companies are not very good at looking at meaning not at work, but meaning in work. Meaning at work is the purpose of the company. Meaning in work is you feel like the work you're doing is impacting that purpose. Mm. And most companies get that wrong. They're not very focused on how do you acquaint people in your company to the fact that the work that they're doing is actually serving that meaning purpose. So um, I think doing both of those are essential. And that's an unmet need. And when you create an environment where people feel a sense of calling, it's the difference between Southwest Airlines flight attendants and United's. Um, I'm, I hate to use two companies, but I've used this for a long time because people you know, say to me all the time, like, those are, they're doing the same thing. Yeah. But at Southwest, Southwest has created an environment with, they've created the conditions for their flight attendants to feel like they're doing their calling. They're living their calling. At United, less so. United's actually getting better at that, but for the longest time, they weren't. And so two people, two different companies could have, have a completely different experience based upon the conditions that the company has created to address those unmet needs. It took me a while to realize that this is actually regardless of level and yeah. title. And there's a very famous story that everyone, or well, a lot of people might have heard of, but I'll share another one with you. There was the cleaner who was working in the space station and yeah. when asked, what, what's your role here? It says, I'm putting someone on the moon, yeah. right? Because they, they felt that level of meaning. Um, before moving to the US and working for Culture Amp, I worked for a private hospital group that ran hospitals around the world. And our CEO was incredibly humble, uh, you know, one of the richest men in, in Australia. And when he would go visit a hospital, the first employee that he'd always go spend time with is the janitor. Mm. And they, I asked Paul, you know, why do you, you know, what is it about the janitor that you always, you know, feel really compelled to have the conversation with about? And he said, look, the janitor actually spends nearly as much time with the patients as the nurses and the doctors, yeah. definitely more than the doctors and sometimes more than the nurses. Mm. So when it comes to actually improving the, you know, the likelihood of them, you know, surviving and getting through whatever they're going through, you know, the janitor actually has a huge impact on like how that person <coughs> feels and whether they feel like, you know, they're, they're being heard. So it's another, you know, you don't think about janitors saving lives, but like that's how he really thought about it. You mentioned my TED talk. I've, I've been lucky enough to give two. And uh, the, the other one it was from 2010, which is this uh, talk about Bhutan and happiness. But I start the talk with Vivian, who has now worked for me for 32 and a half years as a maid and as a housekeeper in a hotel. And learning what gave her a sense of meaning helped me to understand how could we serve her better? Mm. How could we create an environment where she felt now 32 and a half years into it that I wouldn't ever want to leave this job because I have such a sense of meaning. Mm. So uh, what you have to learn is bartenders have a different sense of meaning often than than maids, than the front desk, than a Beldman. So you you have to realize that job classifications often have different senses of what gives them meaning. You spoke about the modern elder and you describe a modern elder as someone who's as curious as they are wise. Yeah. How would you encourage someone, regardless of age, to take on that mindset and not have to wait until they're 
you know, classified as a modern elder. Yeah, you know, I, see, listen, I'm moder- first of all, the word elder is a relative term. So you could be a 35-year-old surrounded by 22-year-olds, and you might be an elder mm. because in that group, you are the eldest, and there's a generational difference potentially. So I, I think the key is this combination of curiosity and wisdom. The elder of the past was appreciated because you revered them. There was a reverence for them. The modern elder is not about reverence. It's about relevance. And you build some wisdom over time. You cultivate and har- cultivate it and harvest it. But if you don't have context to understand how to apply that timeless wisdom, it isn't going to go anywhere. So understanding context comes from the place of saying, curiosity, how is it, how do, how do I understand the context? So for me at Airbnb, to use, to make it less abstract, I joined, I had some wisdom, but I didn't understand the context of working in a tech company. So I had to be, frankly, I took off my wisdom hat the first six months I was there, and I was more focused on the curiosity and mm-hmm. learning. And that allowed me to understand the, the, um, the, the habitat I was in, which allowed me to be much better at being able to offer the wisdom in a way that it was meaningful to people. Um, the problem with a lot of people who are who might want to be a modern elder, but they're just an older person who are, is stuck in their ways, is instead of actually being the one ask, asking questions and being curious, they're the ones giving advice when nobody asked for it. Mm. They're the ones who are sort of defining how the world works based upon how it's worked the last 25 years of their life. And they haven't actually sort of sped up to realize things are different today. And especially for someone who's 25 years younger than you, who has a completely different perspective, that person doesn't necessarily want to hear their pastor or their parent preaching to them. And that's generally how a lot of older people come at that relationship. It's like, oh, millennials don't want to hear from me. I'm a boomer and they don't want to hear from me. Well, they don't want to hear from you if you're preaching. And so I think coming from a perspective of curiosity creates um, an, an environment where you're a little bit more humble as well. It would have been very easy for you to turn up and just go straight into wisdom at Airbnb and be like, look, I've done this before, listen to me. But being curious <laughs> actually meant that the wisdom would actually sit with them because you actually took that as like, this is how I want to enter. Yep. And then when, when it's time, yes, I've got some thoughts about this. Yeah, and there's no doubt. I, I um, learned quickly that just you know sitting at the pulpit uh, preaching wasn't going to go very far. And, you know, it's that, I, the good news is I learned it fast enough that I didn't build a reputation in that way. Unfortunately, I've seen people, not just at Airbnb, but at other companies, be twice the age of the people and not be able to connect. And it's not because, you know, oh, yes, I go to Burning Man or I'm some cool hipster who had boutique hotels. Yes, some of that is true. I am culturally more hip for a 58-year-old than an average person might be my age. But the reason I actually was able to connect was because there was a sense that I was approachable. And I was I was somebody who, as someone once said to me, Chip, you intern publicly and you mentor privately. And what does that mean? It means that in the context of a group of people, I, I would never mentor someone or say, you did that wrong <laughs> to someone um, in a group setting. And I would never even say you did something wrong. I, like I might just ask, you want some, you want some perspective on what, what, what happened? You just led a meeting and, and I, I can tell you're not happy about how it went. Let's talk about it. So there's, there, I'm a partner with them as opposed to the preacher. Um, and so I think that's the really it. It's, you know, it doesn't, you, you don't have to actually change your hair color. I, you know, I have gray. I mean, I'm not hiding it. Um, I don't, I don't hide my age. 
I don't hide my graduation date from college. Um, you know, I own that I'm 58 years old. And um, so in that environment, one of the things that someone said to me once was, you know, when you are creatively inspired and engaged and passionate, somehow your wrinkles seem to fade away. Hmm. And what they meant by that is people over time start to read energy. And I'm not saying this in a new age way, but energy is a person energized by what they're talking about and by how they're living their life. And when you're energized, you seem younger. Yeah. And when you're not, you seem older and it has nothing to do with chronology uh, or how old you are. You can feel it and see it as well. That's right. It's um, a level of actual authenticity with yeah. someone showing up. Or just someone being engaged. I mean, yeah. funny enough, I called my company Joie de Vivre, Joy of Life. Yeah. So if someone has a Joie de Vivre spirit and they're 95 years old, you feel it. Yeah. And you want to be near them. You strike me as one of the most conscious leaders I think I've ever come across. Oh wow! Well, um, I don't know how to I don't know how to respond to that, but no, like and I think I think it shows up in the conversation that we have and, and the impact that you've had at the companies that you've worked at. Yeah, thank you. Um, do you have like any parting advice for someone who wants to maybe instill a sense of leadership that you've been able to sort of build up over your career? I think you know the number one thing that I think about is um, your our, our reputation. You know, in the corporate world, we call that brand. In a personal world, we call it reputation. And if you think of your reputation as the most valuable asset you're building over the course of your life, and it's a, and it's an asset that actually arrives before you do. Let's say, say you're, you're going to a new job and you have a reputation. That reputation precedes you often. When you think of your life and your work and your leadership that way, you show up differently. And one of the ways that I have helped instill that in the people in my company, companies, is uh, we've gone at times for 30 days where we say we aren't using the word manager or leader for the next 30 days. We're only using the word role model. So when you talk about anything, if you use manager or leader, stop yourself and say, no, it's actually role model. Because when you actually think of yourself as a role model, you are in the process of building a reputation. And that's frankly the most valuable thing you can build in a lifetime. big thank you to Chip Connolly for joining me on the Culture First podcast. I took a lot away from this conversation and like I said, I've been waiting to share it with all of you listeners. So I really hope that you found it as entertaining and inspirational as I did. At the heart of this conversation is the theme of being a modern elder in the workplace. To be a modern elder, Chip said that you better be as curious as you are wise. I think one of the things that we've all had to work through over the past 12 months is unlearning behaviours either because they just don't serve us anymore or they aren't even possible. We've all had to get curious again and ask ourselves what can be possible when it comes to the employee experience. Chip's book is full of amazing anecdotes and stories about how we can all play the role of an elder in the workplaces and communities that we're members of. And to everyone who's listened all the way through to the end of the episode, I want to send some special copies out to you. So if you leave a review on either Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening, please just send me a screenshot of that review and you can send it to me on LinkedIn or, or on Twitter and you'll be in the running to win a copy of Chip's book. I highly, highly recommend it. 
So that's the end of this episode of the Culture First podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to be notified when we publish new episodes. And a final reminder to head to culturefirstglobal.culturamp.com to secure your ticket to our global event series happening this year. Thanks to everyone for listening, and we'll be back soon with another episode of the Culture First podcast.